This performance is a co-production of loudlit.org and Literal Systems. The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain Performed by Mark Devine Chapter 39 In the morning we went up to the village and bought a wire rat trap and fetched it down and unstopped the best rat hole, and in about an hour we had fifteen of the bulliest kind of ones, and then we took it and put it in a safe place under Aunt Sally's bed. But while we was gone for spiders, little Thomas Franklin Benjamin Jefferson Alexander Phelps found it there, and opened the door of it to see if the rats would come out, and they did. And Aunt Sally, she come in, and when we got back she was a-standin' on top of the bed raisin' cane, and the rats was doing what they could to keep off the dull times for her. So she took and dusted us both with the hickory, and we was as much as two hours catching another fifteen or sixteen, drat that meddlesome cub, and they weren't the likeliest nother, because the first haul was the pick of the flock. I never see a likelier lot of rats than what that first haul was. We got a splendid stock of sorted spiders and bugs and frogs and caterpillars and one thing or another, and we liked to got a hornet's nest, but we didn't. The family was at home. We didn't give it right up, but stayed with them as long as we could, because we allowed we'd tire them out, or they'd got to tire us out, and they done it. Then we got Allie Cumpain and rubbed it on the places, and was pretty near all right again, but couldn't set down convenient. And so we went for the snakes, and grabbed a couple dozen garters and house snakes, and put them in a bag, and put it in our room, and by that time it was supper time, and a rattling good honest day's work. And hungry? Oh no, I reckon not. And there weren't a blessed snake up there when we went back. We didn't half tie the snack, and they worked out somehow and left. But it didn't matter much because they was still on the premises somewheres, so we judged we could get some of them again. No, there weren't no real scarcity of snakes about the house for a considerable spell. You'd see them dripping from the rafters and places every now and then, and they generally landed in your plate or down the back of your neck, and most of the time where you didn't want them, well... They was handsome and striped, and there weren't no harm in a million of them. But that never made no difference to Aunt Sally. She despised snakes, be the breed what they might, and she couldn't stand them no way you could fix it. And every time one of them flopped down on her, it didn't make no difference what she was doing. She would just lay that work down and light out. I never see such a woman. And you could hear her whoop to Jericho. You couldn't get her to take a holt of one of them with the tongs. And if she turned over and found one in bed, she would scramble out and lift a howl that you would think the house was afire. She disturbed the old man so that he said he could most wish there had never been no snakes created. Why, after every last snake had been gone clear out of the house for as much as a week, Aunt Sally weren't over it yet. She weren't near over it. When she was settin' thinking about something, you could touch her on the back of her neck with a feather, and she would jump right out of her stockings. It was very curious. But Tom said all women was just so. He said they was made that way for some reason or other. We got a lickin' every time one of our snakes come in her way, and she allowed these lickin's weren't nothing to what she would do if we ever loaded up the place again with them. I didn't mind the lickin's, because they didn't amount to nothing, but I minded the trouble we had to lay in another lot. But we got them laid in, and all the other things, and you never see a cabin as blithesome as Jim's was when they'd all swarm out for music and go for em. Jim didn't like the spiders, and the spiders didn't like Jim, and so they'd lay for him and make it mighty warm for him. 
and he said that between the rats and the snakes and the grindstone, there weren't no room in bed for him scarcely, and when there was, a body couldn't sleep, it was so lively, and it was always lively, he said, because they never all slept at one time, but took turn about. So when the snakes was asleep, the rats was on deck, and when the rats turned in, the snakes come on watch, so he always had one gang under him in his way, and t'other gang having a circus over him. And if he got up to hunt a new place, the spiders would take a chance at him as he crossed over. He said if he ever got out this time, he would never be a prisoner again, not for a salary. Well, by the end of three weeks, everything was in pretty good shape. The shirt was sent in early, in a pie, and every time a rat bit Jim, he would get up and write a little in his journal, whilst the ink was fresh. The pens was made, the inscriptions and so on was all carved on the grindstone. The bed leg was sawed in two, and we had ed up the sawdust, and it give us a most amazing stomach ache. We reckoned we was all going to die, but didn't. It was the most undigestible sawdust I ever see, and Tom said the same. But as I was saying, we'd got all the work done now, at last, and we was all pretty much fagged out too, but mainly Jim. The old man had rode a couple of times to the plantation below Orleans to come and get their runaway nigger, but hadn't got no answer because there weren't no such plantation. So he allowed he would advertise Jim in the St. Louis and New Orleans papers, and when he mentioned the St. Louis ones, it give me the cold shivers, and I see we had no time to lose. So Tom said, Now for the anonymous letters. What's them, I says? Warnings to the people that something is up. Sometimes it's done one way, sometimes another, but there's always somebody spying around that gives notice to the governor of the castle. When Louis Sixteenth was going to light out of the Tuileries, a servant girl done it. It's a very good way, and so is the anonymous letters. We'll use them both and it's usual for the prisoner's mother to change clothes with him, and she stays in, and he slides out in her clothes. We'll do that, too. But looky here, Tom. What do we want to warn anybody for that something's up? Let them find it out for themselves. It's their lookout. Yes, I know. But you can't depend on them. It's the way they've acted from the very start. Left us to do everything. They're so confiding and mullet-headed. They don't take notice of nothing at all. So if we don't give them notice, there won't be nobody, nor nothing, to interfere with us. And so after all our hard work and trouble, this escape will go off perfectly flat. Won't amount to nothing. Won't be nothing to it. Well, as for me, Tom, that's the way I'd like. Shucks, he says, and looked disgusted. So I says, but I ain't going to make no complaint. Any way that suits you suits me. What you going to do about the servant girl? You'll be her. You slide in in the middle of the night and hook that yaller girl's frock. Why, Tom, that'll make trouble next morning, because, of course, she probably hain't got any but that one. Well, I know, but you don't want it but fifteen minutes to carry the anonymous letter and shove it under the front door. Well, all right, then, I'll do it. But I could carry it just as handy in my own togs. You wouldn't look like a servant girl then, would you? No, but there won't be anybody to see what I look like anyway. That ain't got nothing to do with it. The thing for us to do is just to do our duty and not worry about whether anybody sees us do it or not. Ain't you got no principle at all? All right, I ain't saying nothing. I'm the servant girl. Who's Jim's mother? I'm his mother. I'll hook a gown from Aunt Sally. Well, then, you'll have to stay in the cabin while me and Jim leaves. Not much. 
I'll stuff Jim's clothes full of straw and lay it on his bed to represent his mother in disguise, and Jim will take Aunt Sally's gown off of me and wear it, and we'll all evade together. When a prisoner of style escapes, it's called an evasion. It's always called so when a king escapes, for instance. And the same with the king's son. It don't make no difference whether he's a natural one or an unnatural one. So Tom, he wrote the anonymous letter, and I smooched the Aller Wrench's frock that night and put it on and shoved it under the front door the way Tom told me to. It said, Beware. Trouble is brewing. Keep a sharp lookout. Unknown friend. Next night, we stuck a picture, which Tom drawed in blood, of a skull and crossbones on the front door, and next night, another one of a coffin on the back door. I never see a family in such a sweat. They couldn't have been worse scared if the place had have been full of ghosts laying for them behind everything and under the beds and shivering through the air. If a door banged, Aunt Sally, she jumped and said, ouch, if anything fell. She jumped and said, ouch, if you happened to touch her. When she weren't noticing, she'd done the same. She couldn't face no way and be satisfied because she allowed there was something behind her every time. So she was always a whirling around sudden and saying, ouch. And before she'd got two-thirds around, she'd whirl back again and say it again. And she was afraid to go to bed, but she dasn't set up. So the thing was working very well, Tom said. He said he never see a thing more, more satisfactory. He said it showed it was done right. So he said, now for the grand bulge. So the very next morning at the streak of dawn, we got another letter ready and was wondering what we better do with it because we heard them saying at supper they was going to have a nigger on watch at both doors all night. Tom, he went down the lightning rod to spy around, and the nigger at the back door was asleep, and he stuck it in the back of his neck and come back. This letter said, Don't betray me. I wish to be your friend. There is a desperate gang of cutthroats from over in the Indian Territory going to steal your runaway nigger tonight, and they have been trying to scare you so as you will stay in the house and not bother them. I am one of the gang, but have got religion and wish to quit it and lead an honest life again, and will betray the hellish design. They will sneak down from Northards, along the fence, at midnight exact, with a false key, and go in the nigger's cabin to get him. I am to be off a piece and blow a tin horn if I see any danger, but instead of that, I will bad like a sheep soon as they get in and not blow at all. Then, whilst they are getting his chains loose, you slip there and lock them in, and can kill them at your leisure. Don't do anything but just the way I am telling you. If you do... They will suspicion something and raise a whoop jamboree who. I do not wish any reward, but to know I have done the right thing. Unknown Friend Chapter 40 We was feeling pretty good after breakfast, and took my canoe and went over the river a-fishing, with a lunch, and had a good time, and took a look at the raft and found her all right, and got home late to supper, and found them in such a sweat and worry, they didn't know which end they was standing on, and made us go right off to bed the minute we was done supper, and wouldn't tell us what the trouble was, and didn't let on a word about the new letter, but didn't need to, because we knowed as much about it as anybody did, and as soon as we was half upstairs, and her back was turned, we slid for cellar cupboard, and loaded up a good lunch, and took it up to our room and went to bed, and got up about half past eleven, and Tom put on Aunt Sally's dress that he stole, and was going to start with the lunch, but says, Where's the butter? I laid out a hunk of it, I says, on a piece of corn pone. Well, you left it laid out, then. It ain't here. 
We can get along without it, I says. We can get along with it, too, he says. Just you slide down cellar and fetch it, and then mosey right down the lightning rod and come along. I'll go and stuff the straw into Jim's clothes to represent his mother in disguise, and be ready to bad like a sheep and shove soon as you get there. So out he went, and down cellar went I. The hunk of butter, big as a person's fist, was where I had left it. So I took up the slab of corn pone with it on, and blowed out my light, and started upstairs very stealthy, and got up to the main floor all right. But here comes Aunt Sally with a candle, and I clapped the truck in my hat, and clapped my hat on my head, and the next second she see me, and she says, You been down cellar? Yes, sir. What you been doing down there? Nothing. Nothing? No, em. Well, then, what possessed you to go down there this time of night? I don't know him. You don't know? Don't answer me that way. Tom, I want to know what you've been doing down there. I ain't been doing a single thing, Aunt Sally. I hope to gracious if I have. I reckon she'd let me go now, and as general thinks she would. But I suppose there was so many strange things going on, she was just in a sweat about every little thing that weren't yardstick straight. So she says, very decided, You just march into that setting room and stay there till I come. You been up to something you know business to, and I'll lay I'll find out what it is before I'm done with you. So she went away as I opened the door and walked into the setting room. My, but there was a crowd there, fifteen farmers, and every one of them had a gun. I was most powerful sick, and slunk to a chair and sat down. They was sitting around, some of them talking a little in a low voice, and all them fidgety and uneasy, but trying to look like they weren't. But I knowed they was, because they was always taking off their hats and putting them on, and scratching their heads and changing their seats, and fumbling with their buttons. I weren't easy myself, but I didn't take my hat off all the same. I did wish Aunt Sally would come, and get done with me and lick me if she wanted to, and let me get away and tell Tom how we'd overdone this thing, and what a thundering hornet's nest we'd got ourselves into, so we could stop fooling around straight off and clear out with Jim before these rips got out of patience and come for us. At last she come and begun to ask me questions, but I couldn't answer them straight. I didn't know which enemy was up, because these men was in such a fidget now that some was wanting to start right now and lay for them desperados, and saying it weren't but a few minutes to midnight, and others was trying to get them to hold on and wait for the sheep signal. But here was Auntie pegging away at the questions, and me a-shaking all over and ready to sink down in my tracks I was that scared and the place getting hotter and hotter, and the butter beginning to melt and run down my neck and behind my ears. And pretty soon, when one of them says, I'm for going and getting in the cabin first, and right now, and catching them when they come, I most dropped, and a streak of butter come a-trickling down my forehead, and Aunt Sally, she see it, and turns white as a sheet and says, For the land's sake, what is the matter with the child? He's got the brain fever as sure as you're born, and they're oozing out. And everybody runs to see, and she snatches off my hat, and out comes the bread, and what was left of the butter, and she grabbed me and hugged me and says, Oh, what a turn you did give me, and how glad and grateful I am it ain't no worse, for luck's against us, and it never rains, but it pours. And when I see that truck, I thought we'd lost you, for I'd knowed by the color and all, it was just like your brains would be if... <laughs> dear, dear... Why didn't you tell me that was what you'd been doing down there? I wouldn't have cared. Now clear out to bed, 
and don't let me see no more of you till morning. I was upstairs in a second, and down the lightning rod in another one, and shinning through the dark for the lean-to. I couldn't hardly get my words out, I was so anxious. But I told Tom as quick as I could we must jump for it now, and not a minute to lose, the house full of men yonder with guns. His eyes just blazed, and he says, No, is that so? Ain't it bully? Why, Huck, if we was to do it over again, I bet I could fetch two hundred. If we could put it off till... Hurry, hurry, I says. Where's Jim? Right at your elbow. If you reach out your arm, you can touch him. He's dressed and everything's ready. Now we'll slide out and give the sheep signal. Then we heard the tramp of men coming to the door and heard them begin to fumble with the padlock and heard a man say, I told you we'd be too soon. They haven't come. The door is locked. Here, I'll lock some of you into the cabin and you lay for him in the dark and kill him when they come and the rest scatter around a piece and listen if you can hear him coming. So in they come, but couldn't see us in the dark and most trod on us whilst we was hustling to get under the bed. But we got under all right and out through the hole, swift but soft, Jim first, me next, and Tom last, which was according to Tom's orders. Now we was in the lean-to and heard trampings close by outside. So we crept to the door and Tom stopped us there and put his eye to the crack, but couldn't make out nothing it was so dark, and whispered and said he would listen for the steps to get further, and when he nudged us, Jim must glide out first and him last. So he set his ear to the crack and listened and listened and listened, and the steps are scraping around out there all the time, and at last he nudged us, and we slid out, and stooped down, not breathing, and not making the least noise, and slipped stealthily towards the fence and engine file, and got to it all right, and me and Jim over it, but Tom's breeches catched fast on a splinter on the top rail, and then he hear the steps coming, so he had to pull loose, which snapped the splinter and made a noise, and as he dropped on our tracks and started, somebody sings out, Who's that? Answer or I'll shoot. But we didn't answer. We just unfurled our heels and shoved. Then there was a rush and a bang, 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 and the bullets fairly whizzed around us. We heard them sing out, Here they are. They've broke for the river. After them, boys, and turn loose the dogs. So here they come, full tilt. We could hear them because they wore boots and yelled. But we didn't wear no boots and didn't yell. We was in the path to the mill, and when they got pretty close on to us, we dodged into the bush and let them go by, and then dropped in behind them. They'd had all the dogs shut up, so they wouldn't scare off the robbers, but by this time somebody had let them loose, and here they come, making pow-wow enough for a million. But they was our dogs, so we stopped in our tracks till they catched up, and when they see it weren't nobody but us, and no excitement to offer them, they only just said howdy, and tore right ahead towards the shouting and clattering. And then we upstream again, and whizzed along after them till we was nearly to the mill, and then struck up through the bush to where my canoe was tied, and hopped in and pulled for dear life towards the middle of the river, but didn't make no more noise than we was obliged to. Then we struck out, easy and comfortable, for the island where my raft was, and we could hear them yelling and barking at each other all up and down the bank till we was so far away the sounds got dim and died out. And when we stepped onto the raft, I says... Now, old Jim, you're a free man again, and I bet you won't ever be a slave no more. And a mighty good job it was, too, Huck. It was planned beautiful, and it was done beautiful, and they ain't nobody can get up a plan that's more mixed up and splendid than what that one was. We was all as glad as we could be, 
But Tom was the gladdest of all, because he had a bullet in the calf of his leg. When me and Jim heard that, we didn't feel so brash as what we did before. It was hurting him considerable and bleeding. So we laid him in the wigwam and tore up one of the Duke's shirts for to bandage him. But he says, Give me the rags, I can do it myself. Don't stop now, don't fool around here. And the evasion booming along so handsome. Man the sweeps and set her loose. Boys, we done it elegant, deed we did. I wish we'd a had the handling of Louis sixteen. There wouldn't have been no son of St. Louis ascend to heaven, wrote down in his biography. No, sir, we'd a whooped him over the border. That's what we'd a done with him, and done it just as slick as nothing at all, too. Man the sweeps, man the sweeps. But me and Jim was consulting and thinking. And after we thought a minute, I says, Say it, Jim. So he says, Well, then, this is the way it looked to me, Huck. If it was him that was being sot free, and one of the boys was to get shot, would he say, Go on and save me. Never mind about a doctor for to save this one. Is that like Moss Tom Sawyer? Would he say that? You bet he wouldn't. Well, then, is Jim going to say it? No, sir. I don't budge a step out in this place without a doctor. Not if it's forty year. I knowed he was white inside, and I reckon he'd say what he did say. So it was all right now, and I told Tom I was a-going for a doctor. He raised considerable row about it, but me and Jim stuck to it and wouldn't budge. So he was for crawling out and setting the raft loose himself, but we wouldn't let him. Then he gave us a piece of his mind, but it didn't do no good. So, when he sees me getting the canoe ready, he says, Well, then, if you're bound to go... I'll tell you the way to do when you get to the village. Shut the door and blindfold the doctor tight and fast, and make him swear to be silent as the grave, and put a purse full of gold in his hand, and then take and lead him all around the back alleys and everywheres in the dark, and then fetch him here in the canoe in a roundabout way amongst the islands, and search him, and take his chalk away from him, and don't give it back to him till you get him back to the village, or else he will chalk this raft so he can find it again. It's the way they all do. So I said I would, and left, and Jim was to hide in the woods when he see the doctor come until he was gone again. Chapter 41 The doctor was an old man, a very nice, kind-looking old man when I got him up. I told him me and my brother was over on Spanish Island hunting yesterday afternoon, and camped on a piece of a raft we found, and about midnight he must have kicked his gun in his dreams, for it went off and shot him in the leg and we wanted him to go over there and fix it, and not say nothing about it, nor let anybody know, because we wanted to come home this evening and surprise the folks. Who is your folks, he says. Oh, the Phelps is down yonder. Oh, he says, and after a minute he says, How'd you say he got shot? Well, he had a dream, I says, and it shot him. Singular dream, he says. So he lit up his lantern and got his saddlebags, and we started. But when he sees the canoe... He didn't like the look of her, said she was big enough for one, but didn't look pretty safe for two. Well, I says, Oh, you needn't be afeard, sir. She carried the three of us easy enough. What three? Why, me and Sid and... and... and the guns. That's what I mean. Oh, he says. But he put his foot on the gunnel and rocked her and shook his head and said he reckoned he'd look around for a bigger one, but they was all locked and chained. So he took my canoe, 
and said for me to wait till he come back, or I could hunt around further, or maybe I better go down home and get them ready for the surprise if I wanted to. But I said I didn't. So I told him just how to find the raft, and then he started. I struck an idea pretty soon. I says to myself, S'posin' he can't fix that leg just in three shakes of a sheep's tail, as the saying is. S'posin' it takes him three or four days. What are we gonna do? Lay around there till he gets the cat out of the bag? <laughs> no, sir. I know what I'll do. I'll wait. And when he comes back, if he says he's got to go any more, I'll get down there too if I swim. And we'll take and tie him and keep him and shove out down the river. And when Tom's done with him, we'll give him what it's worth, or all we got, and then let him get ashore. So then I crept into a lumber pile to get some sleep. And next time I waked up, the sun was away up over my head. I shot out and went for the doctor's house, but they told me he'd gone away in the night sometime or other and weren't back yet. Well, thinks I, that looks powerful bad for Tom, and I'll dig out for the island right off. So away I shoved and turned the corner and nearly rammed my head into Uncle Silas's stomach. He says, Why, Tom, where you been all this time, you rascal? I ain't been nowheres, I says, only just hunting for the runaway nigger, me and Sid. Why, where did ever you go? He says, Your aunt's been mighty uneasy. She needn't, I says, because we was all right. We followed the men and the dogs, but they outrun us, and we lost them. But we thought we heard them on the water, so we got a canoe and took out after them and crossed over, but couldn't find nothing of them. So we cruised along upshore till we got kind of tired and beat out, and tied up the canoe and went to sleep, and never waked up till about an hour ago. Then we paddled over here to hear the news, and Sid's at the post office to see what he can hear, and I'm a-branching out to get something to eat for us, and then we're going home. So then we went to the post office to get Sid, but just as I suspicioned, he weren't there. So the old man, he got a letter out of the office, and we waited a while longer, but Sid didn't come. So the old man said, Come along, let Sid foot it home or canoe it when he got done fooling around, but we would ride. I couldn't get him to let me stay and wait for Sid, and he said there weren't no use in it, and I must come along and let Aunt Sally see we was all right. When we got home, Aunt Sally was that glad to see me, she laughed and cried both, and hugged me, and give me one of them lickings of hern that don't amount to shucks, and said she'd serve Sid the same when he come. And the place was plumb full of farmers and farmers' wives to dinner, and such another clack a body never heard. Old Miss Hotchkiss was the worst. Her tongue was a-going all the time. She says, Well, Sister Phelps, I've ransacked that air cabin over, and I believe the nigger was crazy. I says to Sister Damrell, didn't I, Sister Damrell? Says I, he's crazy, says I. Them's the very words I said. You all heard me, he's crazy, says I. Everything shows it, says I. Look at that air grindstone, says I. Want to tell me to any critter and says right minds are going to scrabble all them crazy things onto a grindstone, says I? Here's such and such a person busted his heart. And here's so-and-so pegged along for 37 year and all that. Natural son of Louis somebody and such everlasting rubbish. He's plumb crazy, says I. It's what I says in the first place. It's what I says in the middle. And it's what I says last and all the time. The nigger's crazy. Crazy as Nebuchadnezzar, says I. And look at that air ladder made out in rags, Sister Hotchkiss, says old Mrs. Damrell. What name of goodness could he ever want of? 
the very words I was a-saying no longer ago than this minute to Sister Utterback, and she'll tell you so herself, says she. Look at that air rag ladder, says she. And says I, yes, look at it, says I. What could he a wanted of it, says I? Says she, Sister Hodgkins, says she. But how in the nation they ever get that grindstone in there, anyway? And who dug that air hole? And who? My very words, Brad Penrod. I was a-saying, pass that air sasser of molasses, won't you? I was a-saying to Sister Dunlap, just this minute, how did they get that grindstone in there, says I? Without help, mind you, without help. That's where it is. Don't tell me, says I. There was help, says I. And there was a plenty help, too, says I. There's been a dozen a helping that nigger. And I lay I'd skin every last nigger on this place, but I'd find out who done it, says I. And moreover, says I, a dozen, says you. Forty couldn't have done everything that's been done. Look at them case knife saws and things. How tedious they've been made. Look at that bed leg sawed off with em. A week's work for six men. Look at that nigger made out in straw on the bed, and look at... You may well say it, Br'er Hightower. It's just as I was a-saying to Br'er Phelps, his own self. Said he, What do you think of it, Sister Hotchkiss? says he. Think of what, Br'er Phelps? says I. Think of that bed leg sawed off that way, said he. Think of it, says I. I lay it never sawed itself off, says I. Somebody sawed it, says I. That's my opinion. Take it or leave it. It mayn't be no count, says I, but such as it is... It's my opinion, says I, and if anybody can start a better one, says I, let him do it, says I, that's all. I says to Sister Dunlap, says I, why, dog my cats, they must have been a house full of niggas in there every night for four weeks to have done all that work, Sister Phelps. Look at that shirt, every last inch of it covered over with secret African writing done with blood. Must have been a raft of them at it right along all the time a-most. Why, I'd give two dollars to have it read to me. And as for the niggers that wrote it, I'd allow I'd take and lash em till... People to help him, Brother Marples. Well, I reckon you'd think so if you'd have been in this house for a while back. Why, they've stole everything they could lay their hands on. And we are watching all the time, mind you. They stole that shirt right off of the line. And as for that sheet they made the rag ladder out of, there ain't no telling how many times they didn't steal that. And flour, and candles, and candlesticks, and spoons and the old warming pan, and most a thousand things that I disremember now, and my new calico dress, and me and Silas and my Sid and Tom on the constant watch day and night, as I was a-telling you, and not a one of us could catch hide, nor hair, nor sight, nor sound of them. And here at the last minute, lo and behold you, they slides right in under our noses and fools us, and not only fools us, but the Injun Territory robbers too, and actually gets away with that nigger safe and sound, and that with sixteen men and twenty-two dogs right on their very heels at that very time. I tell you, it just bangs anything I ever heard of. Why, sperrits couldn't have done better and been no smarter, and I reckon they must have been sperrits, because you know our dogs, and there ain't no better. Well, them dogs never even got on the track of em once. You explain that to me if you can, any of you. Well, it does beat... Laws alive, I never. So help me, I wouldn't have be. House thieves as well as. Goodness gracious sakes, I'd have been afeard to live in such a. Afraid to live? Why, I was that scared I dasn't hardly go to bed, or get up, or lay down, or set down, Sister Ridgeway. Why, they'd steal the very. Why, goodness sakes, you can guess what kind of a fluster I was in by the time midnight come last night. 
I hope to gracious if I weren't afraid they'd steal some of the family. I was just to that pass I didn't have no reasoning faculties no more. It looks foolish enough now in the daytime, but I says to myself, there's my two poor boys asleep way upstairs in that lonesome room, and I declare to goodness I was that uneasy that I crept up there and locked them in. I did, and anybody would, because you know when you get scared that way, and it keeps running on and getting worse and worse all the time, and your wits get to addling, and you get to doing all sorts of wild things, and by and by you think to yourself, supposing I was a boy and was away up there, and the door ain't locked, and you, she stopped, looking kind of wondering, and then she turned her head around slow, and when her eye lit on me, I got up and took a walk. Says I to myself, I can explain better how we come to not be in that room this morning if I got out to one side and studied it over a little. So I done it. But I dasn't go fur, or she'd have sent for me. And when it was late in the day, the people all went. And then I come in and told her the noise and the shooting waked up me and Sid, and the door was locked, and we wanted to see the fun. So we went down the lightning rod, and both of us got hurt a little, and we didn't never want to try that no more. And then I went on and told her all what I told Uncle Silas before. And then she said she'd forgive us, and maybe it was all right enough anyway, and about what a body might expect of boys, for all boys was a pretty harem-scarum lot as far as she could see, and so, as long as no harm hadn't come of it, she judged she better put in her time being grateful we was alive and well, and she had us still, instead of fretting over what was past and done. So then she kissed me and patted me on the head, and dropped into a kind of a brown study, and pretty soon jumps up and says, "'Why, laws of mercy!' It's most night, and Sid not come yet. What has become of that boy? I sees my chance, so I skips up and says, I'll run right up to town and get him, I says. No, you won't, she says. You'll stay right where you are. One's enough to be lost at a time. If he ain't here to supper, your uncle'll go. Well, he weren't there to supper, so right after supper, uncle went. He come back about ten a little bit uneasy, hadn't run across Tom's track. Aunt Sally was a good deal uneasy, but Uncle Silas, he said there weren't no occasion to be. Boys will be boys, he said, and you'll see this one turn up in the morning all sound and right. So she had to be satisfied, but she said she'd set up for him a while anyway and keep a light burning so he could see it. And then when I went up to bed, she come up with me and fetched her candle and tucked me in and mothered me so good I felt mean and like I couldn't look her in the face and she sat down on the bed and talked with me a long time and said what a splendid boy Sid was and didn't seem to want to ever stop talking about him and kept asking me every now and then if I reckoned he could have got lost or hurt or maybe drowned and might be laying at this minute somewhere suffering or dead and she not by him to help him. And so the tears would drip down silent and I would tell her that Sid was all right and would be home in the morning, sure, and she would squeeze my hand or maybe kiss me and tell me to say it again, and keep on saying it, because it done her good, and she was in so much trouble, and when she was going away, she looked down in my eyes, so steady and gentle, and says, The door ain't going to be locked, Tom, and there's the window and the rod, but you'll be good, won't you? And you won't go, for my sake? Laws knows I wanted to go bad enough to see about Tom, and was all intending to go, but after that, I wouldn't have went not for kingdoms. But she was on my mind, and Tom was on my mind, so I slept very restless, and twice I went down the rod away in the night and slipped around front, 
and see her sitting there by the candle in the window with her eyes towards the road and the tears in them, and I wished I could do something for her, but I couldn't, only to swear that I wouldn't ever do nothing to grieve her any more. And the third time I waked up at dawn and slid down and she was there yet, and her candle was most out, and her old gray head was resting on her hand, and she was asleep. This presentation is dedicated by Gordon W. Draper to all of those who will enjoy this Mark Twain masterpiece.